Good evening. It is May the 6th, 2021. Live from the corner of Walk and Don't Walk, it's the Ken and Ghost News and Views show. Yes, it is. So, what have we got on tap for this evening? Uh, I found a quiet news week, although it's, it's sort of, if you're interested in Kickstarters, there is a whole bunch of stuff coming, which is interesting. Because um, you'd mentioned before that you, you're a little bit disappointed that Wizards hasn't done as many setting books for their 5e system. It's still sort of, you got, I guess Ravenloft is separate, but I, a lot of people sort of consider it still part of the standard D&D setting. And they did have Ravnica, but I don't know anyone that plays it. And then they did Eberron. And there were some from the, the previous things, like you talked about Greyhawk and I think Dark Sun and that. But I've noticed in the last six months, a staggering amount of third-party companies are doing all sorts of different, uh, you know, like setting books and that. Uh, Louis almost bought into this one that uh, based on anime characters. And it was going to be like a very, very much an anime-inspired 5e setting. And that one just ended. But there's all sorts of different ones. We've got High Magic and Low Magic and Satine Phoenix, who used to be the uh, public uh, spokeswoman for Wizards, uh, their, commu- their, their community mm-hmm. position, I think it was. She's just, uh, they've got one up at the moment, which is on um, a city of bards. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, uh, there looks like Kickstarter's been very active the last couple of months, and there's three new ones this week, so... But other than that, I didn't find a whole bunch. There is a little bit of information on the new Ravenloft book coming, uh, which isn't the rewritten adventure that's available in that horrendous box set for over a hundred bucks in his soft cover. That oh my god, making it soft cover I, that that did it for me. Um, but yeah, there was a couple of movie things that we found, which was interesting. That's right. We did stumble across something that the D&D movie has begun filming. Uh, in a post dated on May the 1st, director Jonathan Goldstein tweeted, The campaign begins, and he had an image of a Dungeons and Dragons clackerboard. So that's... Yeah. Um, can I say we're... Waiting anxiously, maybe that's the best way to describe it. <laughs> we, we, we are so hopeful, but at the same time, I think our, our hopes are very heavily grounded, um, given what we've seen in the past. I think it's like a superhero movie in a way, isn't it? It's, it's really, you've got to have the right character for the villain. Almost, I would dare say, almost more so than the right character for the hero. I think the problem when I think about it, it's like superhero movies in general. If you go back to when I was a kid, we did have superhero movies. And they were atrocious. They were absolutely atrocious. We had a Captain America movie when I was a kid. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was spandex and B-grade and the actors tried their damnedest to make it. Uh, believable and interesting, but they had a bad script and it was over the top. And it was over the top in a way that they couldn't do what Adam West did with the TV show Batman, which he played it straight 
but exaggerated it, and they all knew that it was there for laughs. And it worked. I much prefer the serious Batman films as Batman, but I can watch the Adam West shows and have a good laugh, go along with the jokes, and in, and enjoy a lot of the, the the farce of it, which is there on purpose. And guys like Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, you know, I, I read a review where he talked about loving that role because he'd done so many serious roles of like having to do, you know, the really heavy acting. He got to have a blast just goofing off as the Penguin. And so I, I loved that. But if you look at the others, though, they tried to be serious, but they didn't get it. I think the Batman one from Tim Burton was probably the first superhero movie of its type that actually did well and came across as a serious attempt at telling a story. I think we're in the same problem. But, I mean, if you go from... It took from Tim Burton's Batman until... I don't hate some of the DC stuff, but, I mean, really it was Marvel that sort of got back onto the map when it came to, you know, producing a profitable and really good superhero sort of movies. And then we... I mean, okay, people are going to say, what about The Dark Knight and all that? They are amazing, but they're not quite part of the standard DC multiverse the way that Marvel has. The DC multiverse stuff... Has has had some issues. The Dark Knight series is amazing, absolutely, but it's it's not part of their 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 set. They seem to be better when they do individuals. Like Joker is, I think, really clever, but again, it's not part of their standard sort of setup. I thought Gotham overall was pretty good, but again, it's not part of their standard setup. When they try to do what Marvel did, that's where they've been sort of floundering a bit. But I think that's where they are. I think the problem is there was yep. a lot of fantasy films like early on, and some of them, Krull, I quite liked. Deathstalker was good for a laugh. But, you know, Conan, decent. Red Sonja wasn't bad for what it was, but they all sort of suffered from the same sort of problem. It was probably Lord of the Rings that did it really well, and then to show that it might have been luck they made The Hobbit, which was really bad. And Lord of the Rings, though, was so good. For me, I've been a massive Lord of the Rings fan um, all my life. Like I read the series, like the Lord of the Rings full series, when I was in grade nine. And I was absolutely hooked on it. I, I read that, like I, I hadn't read The Hobbit yet. I read The Lord of the Rings first and did it in a summer. And, um, oh my gosh, I, when I heard there was a movie coming out, I was, I was super excited, but much like this D and D movie, I was also really skeptical. And then, you know, I started, you started hearing about some of these names. And of course, at the time, who's Vigio Mortensen? Like, who is that? I don't know. Yep. I mean, I knew Sean Bean, knew John Rhys-Davies. Yeah. Didn't know who Orlando Bloom was. Didn't, uh, you know. And I mean, yeah, I guess we knew Elijah Wood and and uh, Sean Astin. We'd heard of them and stuff. Seen them in, you know, whatever. I won't say crappy movies, but not so good movies, let's say. Um, and again, but it's just like, okay, yeah, they're, they're, they're smaller in height. So I get it. I get what they're doing there. Um, but wow, was I ever surprised at how good that movie was. So 
this gives me hope. And and if we can tie it all back to Batman, let's let's hope that Jonathan Goldstein doesn't set his heights too high because like wandering around on a pier or having something on your resume, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Yeah, I think they're still in that growing phase. And I think for me, the bigger problem is going to be what I what I feel is D&D's biggest problem in general, which is I feel it's been drained of color. Like, it to, to appeal to the masses, and I'm not saying that is necessarily a bad thing, but to try to hit as many people as possible, you have to not make it specific. So I think that's also, though, their massive problem, because by not making anything about it memorable... Because to be memorable, it's got to it's got to sometimes have an edge. It's got to sometimes take a chance, you know. Like the Joker doesn't resonate with everybody as a movie. There's a lot of people said it's no good, but that's a stark film. It has a message. It has, you know. Like, I I understand that when someone says I don't like it, I don't say you should. It's not like I'm. I'm there's no personal affront where I'm going. No, you're not getting this film. You must watch it and enjoy it. No, but. They didn't make just a generic Joker sort of thing to try to get everybody to like it. They went, let's do something and see what we can do with it. And it's edgy and, you know, it's brutal in in a lot of ways. But it's not just this bland slice of white bread. And the problem, I think, with D&D is that they're really starting to take a lot of this sort of like edge out of it and they could tell stories but i think they get too worried about well if we do this will it not appeal to everyone so instead of it being a proper story it becomes just a quest and when i looked at curse of the crimson throne from pathfinder that is a great story overall there's a few things that are are a little bit iffy but overall there's a story from beginning to middle to end. There's stuff in it. There is some brutal stuff. There is some stuff that's shocking. There's some stuff that's not popular. But it's all part of the story. And it makes sense. And it works. They didn't just go, there's a bad guy. And for six adventures, you try to deal with it. There is moral questions that you have to deal with for yourself as well. Who do you support? Because sometimes there's elements that's like, well, this is to our benefit, but we don't completely agree with what they're doing. So there's these sort of moral choices mixed in in that. And a lot of the D&D adventures that I've been reading lately are completely devoid of these sort of things to be just appealing to everybody. And I think it's really hurting them. And it's going to... I mean, it's not. I mean, it's it's not hurting them on obviously a monetary scale because it's still the number one game. So I mean, but I think it's really hurting them on on story though because I'm I've just reread Dragon Heist, and I think it's a bit of a mess. It could have been Ocean's Eleven for D and D, and it's not. And I don't want to spoil the, the the stuff, so I'm not going to talk too much about what what is what is there. But there's a 
there's a lot of stuff that's in there that is bland. That's just an adventure, but not an adventure like that has real meaning or shapes anything. It's just, this is the next bit we do. And I played Ghosts of Saltmarsh. There's no ghosts to start with. There's no ghosts. It's not really a swashbuckling adventure, although it was sort of, it wasn't completely marketed like that, but it was sort of marketed like, here's our collection of swashbuckling sort of things. There's no cohesion in those adventures. And while some people say, yeah, but they collected some new and some old. Okay. But you have talented writers. That's what their job is. They, you know, if they were going to rewrite some of these to 5e, which they did, why not connect them? Why not use that? creative brain power they're meant to have and create a story arc with a beginning a middle and an end linking all those adventures together and it's really not there and it's just another sit down and 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 play through um what was the other one the other collection it was the same it had uh haven't i haven't read that but i've read some um interesting complaints about how how, how the use of magic uh so i'm a, I'm a big thing that the problem I think is also going to lead into our, our treasure discussion. I have a problem with spells in D&D. I think the spells can get in the way of story. I've had, when I when I ran Ghosts of Salt Marsh, I had stories, well, parts of the stories end with the use of one spell. And people have suggested ways that, you know, this could have been... Um, this could have been been stopped. One of them was give the bad guys spells that they didn't have. Um, others just say, just tell them it doesn't work. But I don't know many players that would accept that without complaint if you just said, no, your spell doesn't work. But it cut out an entire section of the adventure. And then they didn't learn stuff because of it. And when it was all over at the end, the players said, we thought this would be better. Well... <laughs> <laughs> they actively worked against having a good time in a way, but a lot of the um, moral decision stuff that you would like to have in in some of the games, I I like that stuff too. But what I find is it it does require total absolutely buy in as a character, and that's that's where too often people forget, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody. You forget that you're playing a character. And if you can remember that, that makes the moral choice thing oh so much easier. And it's you don't realize it in the moment, but it's really giving you, here's the perfect opportunity for me to develop this character. And now I know if if I choose to let that guy go as opposed to killing him outright, Man, now I've got my whole my character's mentality is set, and and I'm open to to change that over time and everything, right? But I've got as an immediate reaction to anything, I've got it down pat at that moment. Now, when I've done that, if I've chosen to note that guy has to be killed and I killed him, boom! Anytime anything goes wrong, you're either with me or against me. That's how my character alignment's going to go now and it, it, it's it's difficult to remember that when you're in but the I think that that lack of buy-in has 
all, almost crippled cert, certain games and and required them now to be played a certain way because yeah even we just did a review yeah. of Star Wars D6 the other day and Adam found a bit where it said really try to become your character and think about what your character would do and don't just roll a dice and go 16 you know how does that number transfer and tell a story you'll have more fun and that was a 30 year old game and that had been i think lost for a a lot of time yeah well i think a lot of the other style of of playing the games is i don't want to say it's it's rewarded but i i just think it's somewhere along the line that became the accepted standard and the other is is just forgotten and it's not that it's punished but you know it becomes a question of well i can do all that or i can just roll the dice and then i move on and um there are certain certain types of games that you're going to play would cater more to hey you want to develop this character out but i but i get it for for things like a um, Pathfinder Society or Adventure League or something where, hey, it's it's we're on a clock doing this. That's that's the appeal to the same people that maybe mm-hmm. uh, if they want to play chess with the with the clock, you know. Um, and I, and I get it. And there's nothing. There's absolutely cannot stress this enough. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not trying to tell you one way's right or one way's wrong. There is the the, the wrong way is if you're not having fun because the only problem i have with that is with new players because if that's how they actually enjoy playing that's totally fine like you said and that's and if you get your table and everyone likes playing like that and that's how they enjoy it go for it i'm not telling you not to and i will never be telling you not to the problem comes when you get and i have run into these people who left al and I, I saw them on the street once after that. And I, and I just said, oh, yeah, I hadn't seen you there. And, that, and, and they said to me, well, I was looking for something more. And I thought it was something more. And it wasn't. The thing was, it is. It just wasn't AL that they were looking for. They were looking for a more buy-in character game. But if your introduction is only this one style and if there's no way that you can see that it can be more or with a different group you can think oh this is all role playing is and they do lose i think those people if they can't find a group that does do more character or story sort of based stuff or because like yeah they a lot of them, well they just, what they need is a you know as a campaign then with, you know, a storyteller GM or something. It's like, well, yeah, totally. But you don't get that at AL. And a lot of stores discourage that. Sorry, stores, you do. You only want the AL and you can't do anything else on that night. They won't say, okay, you know what? Yeah, we'll do a campaign. Um, and they do lose some people, I think. You know, maybe... I don't know what the percentage is. I have no idea, but I do know they lose some that do look for that other style of game. And if you only learn one way, that's what you're gonna you're gonna learn. Like that's that's I think where the problem is. It's it's not in the style of game itself. It's just that there's that people play different ways. But when you own, if there's only one way catered to, 
you're going to lose those other people. And I'd do it the other way too, right? Like I'm, like we're saying, we have no problem with people playing the way they play. And if someone is sitting at a table that, like our Shadowrun group, they will go to the bar, which is Cornerstones, and spend the entire night there. And when I say spend the entire night there, there's a three-hour session of them all in character. It's funny. There's a lot of laughs, but they don't touch the actual adventure at all for three hours. And someone who's goal-orientated and is all about the quest and the mission would have hated those nights because they don't touch or do anything with the the actual mission at all. But there needs to be a way to cater to both both groups so that people can work out where they want to um, play and, and how they want to play. And games like Star Wars, Legends of Five Rings, Doctor Who, uh, Alien. Oh, my God, Alien. If you do not buy into Alien, you have a very, very, very bad game. It is all about buy-in. You can't play it like a regular game. If you... And this is why I think that the only problem with the Alien setting would be that you need buy-in. You really do. Oh, there's a face hugger. Well, guess what? You don't know what it is. You might can, because you've seen the movies. So you have to buy into that, that your character, this deep hall trucker, space truckers they call them in the book, they don't know what a facehugger is. They don't know that their crew member has been impregnated now with this egg that's going to burst out of his chest and then grow into a big dark beastie that's going to terrorize and kill them for the rest of the adventure. You know that, though. And making decisions for your character, not for you, is key to that game. And it's also a game because it's not lots of fights and lots of combat. You really have to play. It's about role. It really is. It's about role. And if you can't do that, at the end of the night, you can say, I didn't, I didn't enjoy this at all. This is, this, is, this is a game that I just don't get. So, yeah, I think character... But I think, in general, character buy-in is, for me, essential into every single game. I can't play a game now that doesn't have a table that buys into their characters. I can't do it. But that's just... Because it doesn't tick what I want to, you know, get from a game. But I understand that if that's what they want to do, they'd hate my games. So, yeah, I mean, I get it, but I think I do think that that's a problem, that they're not catering to both groups. They're not learning. Like, for new players, old players should by, by then know this or different ways of playing that. But new players, they usually come from seeing Stranger Things or, um, you know, they might have seen the Lord of the Rings movies. There was a couple that said they saw that and got interested in fantasy after that. But Stranger Things, Big Bang Theory to a degree. So that initial, like, what's this game about? So I think that they really need to have different styles of game to at least let people experience the different ways that these games can be played and then they'll work out which one they really enjoy the most. Now, I never saw it, but I heard that the TV show Community did a good one or two Dungeons and Dragons episodes that were supposed to be really, uh, really spot on, apparently. But I, I can't speak from experience. I didn't see them, so I can neither confirm nor deny these reports. <laughs> but in any event, um, yeah, I, I like the idea of the characters being able to go somewhere and just sit and have a discussion and not touch yes. the mission. 
but as characters. I've experienced it the exact other way where we don't do anything with the mission and everybody's sitting there going through stuff, talking about how they're going to divvy up the treasure, but talking as players. And to me, that is, I'm ready to pull my hair out in frustration when I have to sit through that for three hours. Um, and that kind of leads me to our, our main topic for the evening, which was talking about treasure and both as a player and as a DM, how do you reward the, uh, the, the people in, in your, your group? Or if you're playing, how do you want to have your character rewarded? Or do you have a preference for gold for you to be able to buy things that you want to buy or whatever unit of currency, the game that you're playing has? Or are you, would you be happy with a story reward? Uh, there's, there's several ways we can look at treasure. Treasure is also experience points uh, in, a, in a certain way. And I think as we branch out into these other games that are not so linear in, here's the mission, accomplish this, you get this, everything doesn't go from A to B to C to D all the time. You know, we have to think of different ways to divvy out that treasure. So what's your thought on, let's run with the straight D&D &D version um, first. I find it the hardest because it's the easiest. In that it, the book will just say, here's X amount of treasure. You just divvy it up usually there. They might write it down and do it at the end. The problem with it, no one pays any attention to encumbrance. I mean, it's a boring topic, but really, if you found 5,000 gold pieces, that's not going to be a light thing to be carrying around, even divided. Well, and this is something that always drove me batty as well, because they would say, well, I'll just get it changed yeah. into gems. Okay, but the town that you're in is dirt poor. I don't think the local moneylender is sitting on, you know, five gems that are worth, you know, 2,000 gold pieces each. That, I, I would think if he was, he would either be, like, incredibly stupid to still be there, or the other townspeople probably would have killed him by this point. We kids, or say we were teens, and we'd beaten one of the AD&D adventures, and there was a great big dragon horde at the end of that adventure. And, you know, normally, that's it. You just write down, oh, wow, we've got all this, all this stuff, and away you go. But the GM said, how are you going to transport it? And we were four days from the nearest town. So we had a, a quick huddle, and then Stuart said, I'll go back to town. So he rode off. And then he took some of the some of the money with him, and then he came back with five wagons that had an elaborate paint scheme on them. And we're like, "What's this?" And he said, "Well, I took the money and I started a transport company." So he bought twenty wagons and had started transporting stuff over the town and, and to other towns and stuff, and then brought the others here to collect the the, the gold which I thought was a novel way of, of approaching it. Nice. But, yeah, I mean, you've got encumbrance that people don't really ever take into account. I One thing that is not popular that I do with 
the more purest D&D players is I shift all the coins down one. I made silver the standard coin of the realm, not gold. And once you hit a certain point of your wealth, gold would make sense. But the average citizen would work, I think, with silver and the poor people would be working with copper and maybe tin. So they're not going to have gold. You're not going to go into a poor neighborhood. Like you said, if they're not going to have 10,000 gold piece gems just sitting around in this frontier town or, or, or something. It's going to be the same. You go into a town that's described as, as squalor and had to deal with bandits and they're struggling to feed themselves, but they use gold as a standard coin. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. It, I mean, it really breaks the the whole idea of the story. I mean, everybody has different things that pulls them out of the adventure. But in my mind, when, when I am part of a party that's trying to save some little town or, or, you know, this little town is under threat and we, we roll into town and they ask us to do something. And then I go to their, you know, smithy or whatever, their provision shop. And the guy is selling everything under the sun. I, I really have to sit there and wonder, well, why hasn't someone else in this town <laughs> done this? Like, you know, maybe they could just borrow that for the afternoon and go go do what you're asking us to do. They probably could. You know, it just, it kind of breaks the whole thing for me. But everybody's different. Um, that's cool. I, some people really enjoy having a vast array of magical items to choose from. And they've lost the um, the discussion period of shopping. Like, I remember once a couple of years ago, we had one player found a gem. How much is the gem worth? You don't know. Do you? Do you have a praise? No. But it's... I'm, I want to write down how much it's worth. Well, you'll find out when you try to sell it. But how much is it worth? Well, you don't know. But how much is it worth? Because that's how computer games do it. You pick up a gem and it, 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 bing, it's worth this. Yeah. You know how much it's worth. You just do. And you go there to someone and you can sell it. Unless you get an ability. And sometimes you have an ability that will say you can sell stuff for 25% more. And it's so arbitrary. And that's how some people have now learned how so they've taken out going to a place and trying to haggle or going to a place and they they automatically assume because that's the way it, it's always sort of done now like you said oh we found a gem worth 500 gold pieces and we go into this this frontier town that has one tavern three houses a blacksmith slash something else and say oh you know hello poor person we found uh, a total of 15,000 gold worth of stuff. Oh, you'll buy it? Good. Here you go. <laughs> That's nice you had 15,000. That's what you're saying. Like, it, They'd be like, oh, I don't have that sort of money. You'll have to go to a major town to sell that. No one here is going to yeah. have 15,000 gold. And then they're like, oh, this exactly. is stupid. You know, but that's that's the problem of doing that or, or magic items same sort of thing but i do think magic items have have been so overblown in a lot of these fantasy games because 
I just read Urshrak, which was by the Hildebrandt brothers, who are artists. And it's a very, very Lord of the Rings clone. But it's not a bad romp just for an afternoon sort of fun read. But the prophecy has the young elf lord finding the sword, which is going to be used to slay the villain. And it's a magical sword. And it has importance. And it has story meaning. And that's something that a lot of these games have completely lost because you get your plus one sword. Well, there's no real reason for you to come up with any actual info about it or even really care about it because it's plus one and before long you're going to need a plus two. And the game, although some GMs will say come up with a story, keep keep it going, and when you find a plus two item, you can just keep the sword and we'll make it plus two. But you sort of breaking the way they do things to do that in a way because really the game is a loot shooter and i think that's a huge huge problem it's you you can't have full-on story with a loot shooter it's because the focus is loot and D's focus is loot they game with little cardboard printout cards that people would get whole folders and collect them and stuff and you'd throw your plus one sword away or trade it or sell it or whatever because now you've got a plus two one and now you get a plus three one now you got a plus four one it's always the bigger better you, you won't write this is my an- an- ancestral armor that has been in my family for a thousand years and it's, it's plus one plate because you're going to need plus two plate or you're going to find plus two plate with fire resistance of course you're going to be upscaling it because the game will throw everything at you including the kitchen sink at some point and you need every benefit you can get but all of that is getting in the way of of just being able to tell a story and add to your character and that and there's it's a high magic setting i get it but they've made magic items like trinkets and you just keep getting them keep getting them keep getting them keep getting them yeah well that's that's kind of one of my other points too about it is that a lot of the magical treasure that you're getting, it comes so frequently that it stops being special. Uh, you know, we had discussed it earlier before we started the show tonight that, you know, okay, I've got another magic ring. All right, I guess I'll put that on. And then, uh, oh, okay, here's another magic sword. Oh, well, hmm, should I have my sword and my bow and my dagger, or should I, you know, what, what should I use? How should I fight? Should I fight with the bow and the bracers, or should I fight with the sword and dagger, or should I just fight with the sword and my magic shield? Was, hmm. Um, this this stuff, if it becomes that mundane to you, then it's kind of lost the special thing of it. Magic items should be earned by uh, treasure should be earned. Not, you shouldn't be able to just go buy this stuff or it shouldn't be handed out too readily. It, it, it really like, if you're going to get that magic sword, you better get that magic sword from killing a big bad or slaying some huge monster. Like, that should be a you know fine line between life and death for you to get something really great 
And I mean, it doesn't have to be the plus one sword. It, it can be your, whatever you want to call it, your Holy Avenger sword for your paladin or something. But when you give that out, boy, that guy has to, he literally has to go through everything to get that sword. Because it, it should mean that much to him. And I believe now it's just, it's an automatic. You can summon that at whatever level, you know, you just get it. But even slaying the beasties, it's not usually attached to it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, you, you kill a dragon. Okay, that's a big, big deal. It's a big fight. You know, I'm not, not taking that away. But then it's like, what do you find? Jim goes, okay, you have a 15,000 gold pieces. Uh, there's 10,000 worth of gems. There's a plus one shield of protecting your bollocks. Who wants that? Okay, Tom, you can have that. There is a plus one sword of undead smiting. There is, you know, it's, it's just like, okay, the dragon's collected this stuff, I get it, but it's not connected to anything. It's just, here's a list of stuff and people go, I'll take that, I'll take that, I'll take that. Okay, cool. And we're done. I mean, look at Lord of the Rings. Now, okay, the one ring part is obviously very, very important and there's major rings that, were connected to that one ring. But still, there was other magic rings, but they were rare. And when someone found one, it was a big deal. Whereas, you know, you'd have the Lord of the Ring cartoon on the left and it'd be one ring and everyone's like, whoa. You go to the one on the right, it'd be the entire party with 10 rings, one on each finger going, hi, what's the big deal? This is water breathing. This is this is um, yeah. air breathing. If you're a water person, I'm not, but I'm wearing it anyway. Uh, this is fire resistance. Uh, this is a ring of uh, uh, magic missile. I'm not a mage, but it's pretty. I'm wearing it anyway. And it's like, wow, it's just magic everywhere. No, it is, it is a real, I think it is an issue. Um, you know, there's a lot of things, and, and I have to state it again, we're, we're when we're talking about these, the way we see these things going in the game, we're purely talking about how the Adventurers League runs. And our desire is more for a campaign-based game. So again, the, the Adventurers League, it does what it does, and it, it does that excellently. I think our worry is that there's so many new people, and I, and I still feel that's how the Adventurers League was initially written as it's the hook to get you in, in uh, yep. interested into the hobby. And then from there, I think the intent initially was for you to, now you move on and. Right. Now, now buy Ravenloft or Curse of Strahd and have a campaign and. Yeah. And, and, you know, but that part of it, I, I just, I wonder if it's not a whole societal thing that it just kind of got, lost in the in the mix somewhere that I think a lot of people just found a way to connect to other people with Adventurers League. And that and that's a good thing too. So I'm not crying for the end of Adventurers League by no stretch. I'm just saying that there's other avenues you can explore. And for those people that maybe feel turned off by the game from Adventurers League, it's hey, don't forget there's so many other things. The first thing you gotta remember about games like Dungeons and Dragons, and really for any of these games, is that you can change the rules however you'd like. Um, 
Aaron has done a lot of games where he plays this game using a completely different game system. And that, and I, and I think that like, that's awesome. I, I really like that. I think is such a good idea. And, you know, I, I, I think companies that produce these multiple games, they should always try to find a way to tie that in with it, to say that, Hey, if you want to use this system to try these games, here's how you could maybe give you some some hints on. And I mean, even then, when we because we use Genesis for our Shadowrun game, but even then, we've made a a point of saying we did this because we love Genesis. We love the success with disadvantage, failure with advantage. It's created for us, a very dynamic way of playing. And we love Genesis for that. But at no point did we say that we've chosen this because we felt the original Shadowrun rules were lacking or that they were bad or that people shouldn't use them. We, we have said, there's a new edition of Shadowrun. It's really cool. If you if you dig it, go and check it out. Like If you like our game even, go check it out. Like, yeah, we're doing different rules. but And we have added some more stuff that isn't in Shadowrun because um, I mean, our Shadowrun really is a slice of life in a dystopian future. <laughs> it's the only game that we can think of where Moving House has actually been role-played out. They hired an orc in a van to help them move house, and they RP'd it. And it's funny, because they do a lot of a lot of humorous shenanigans, and it's always in character. That's the one thing I love about this group. But we never said, yeah, we did this because we didn't, you know, Shadowrun's a good setting, but the rest of it's crap. No, it's a really good game. We just, for us and the way we play, Genesis worked better. So even then, we're not saying the original rule set's bad. We're just going with what works best for us. But I think the problem, like what we're saying with, with the AL part, is I think some of the stores have misunderstood the core inclusiveness idea and that was you know like the idea of al is you can walk in and get a game that's what it's for that's brilliant it is you've moved to a new city you don't have many friends you have some social anxiety you know with a a lot of tables are welcoming and cool and if you have an issue most tables in my opinion will work with you they won't work against you. I only had a handful of people in 30 plus years of gaming that I actually say, I won't play with that person because they really are a pain in the ass. There's really not been many. Most tables are going to be welcoming, which is a core part of AL. So that's the idea of it. You don't have many friends you've, because you've moved to a new city. You know, maybe you had to follow work or whatever. That's what AL's for. You can walk into a game store on a, on a night that they do AL and they can find you a table. The problem has come that if someone wants to do a campaign, that's that's the difference. So, so if you say, let's do Ravenloft, and you can't do Ravenloft in one night, that's going to be a several-week event. But a lot of the stores go, well, you can't close that, that table. And I think that I think that's silly because they go, but that's going against the, the idea of in, in, in inclusiveness. I'm like, well, no, not, I don't think it is really in, in this case because it's not like someone saying we don't want them to play. And if there's space 
I've not seen a, a table actually say no to anyone who who wanted to to um to play. Like when we did um uh, which one did we do? The first uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen. We had one guy turn up. He yes. was out of town. He was there for only a couple of weeks. He said, "Could he get a game of D and D?" And we were doing Horde of the Dragon Queen, which was um, a campaign. We were going to play the whole book, and the store owner said, "You know, it's um." We, he realized we were doing a campaign. Could he? Could he play? We said, "Sure, we can make room. Not a big, not a big deal, you know." And he was very appreciative of playing. He was great. Everyone had a good time. No big deal. It's only when people try to join or do something to get the magic item at the end and stuff like this, which is that. Yeah. Well, and that's where it becomes a, it's, yeah, that's an entirely, uh, that, that's where the magic system or the, the treasure thing really kind of, I think the availability of treasure becomes an issue there. And that, that is, that is treasure. That's not necessarily, but everyone at that table was still mingling and talking to everybody else. There was no them and us kind of, kind of thing happening. It's just I think that the and and the AL portion absolutely is about finding you a table. Absolutely. That's what it's for. But if you have let's say seven tables and you have two campaigns or one campaign, you've still got all these other tables that should be able to you know be, be able to accommodate the, those walk-in kind of kind of players. But it turns GMs I think off doing campaigns it did me because a campaign especially if it's meant to have a beginning a middle and an end if i run horde of the dragon queen and it's going to take me seven weeks and i have seven different makeups of people each week they don't know what's going on because they haven't been here for the three previous and they won't be here for any after it i can't do anything as the gm I can only run it exactly as is written because there's no point in me bringing in anything clever because they weren't here for it. They're not going to appreciate it. They won't even know why it's important that I've done it. And they're not going to be here for the next bit when it actually comes into play. And I, I, so I think that the stores are sometimes sort of stumbling over what to do when someone wants to do a campaign. Because really, when you do a campaign, you want to have the same group of people. Now, if you're going to... well. It's a system, right? And a lot of people learned how to game the system. That's that's the that's the problem with it. Is that um, think of it as as baseball, and someone, you know, suddenly you got a bunch of Moneyball D and D players that have figured out, oh, I can just if I just show up on this week, I can get the great treasure for my character, and my character is going to get his level. But now he's going to instead of Having to struggle to reach, let's just throw out an arbitrary number, say to reach level nine, um, and then level nine is when I got this great treasure item. I'm going to get that great treasure item when I'm level six. Because I just showed up on that night. And because I was there when the rest of these level nine guys did this this thing, um, someone at the table gets to get the treasure item and it's the way it used to be was the, the player with the least amount of magic items well if you were a lower level odds were you had fewer magic items 
And I mean, there was a lot of this kind of stuff going on and that just, yeah, something, it just didn't rub me the right way. Well, we, um, yeah. It just took something that, that you wanted to have fun right, with and it, right. and it made it dirty. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's why when we were doing Horde of the Dragon Queen, I actually cut one adventure out, which everyone at the table agreed with because we discussed it, so that we finished one week early because we knew that week eight, I think it was, what it was the original proposed end. And there was one guy who had put his name down on, on it. And the table complained about this because we knew what he was doing. He GM'd, because there was a rule, like which is what Ken has said, the person with the lowest magic items gets first pick. But if you GM, you could take GM reward points and create a character above first level. But you'd have no magic items. So there was character, there was players rather, that would GM, build a character up to, let's say, fourth. Either, I don't know if you could buy with the points up to fourth, but they might play a couple of games and not accept any magic items from any, any adventure they did. Because they had a set idea and his idea was going to be to jump into the last week of game play the last week go oh my character has no magic items so i'm going to choose the dragon mask and we'd ask the store saying look we know that everyone knew everyone knew that's what he was doing gaming the system and you had six people not counting the gm who had played the entire campaign and they weren't this is a thing where they got sour on this setup too because they weren't playing the adventure for the for the magic item they were playing the adventure for the adventure's sake but to have someone be gaming that system who hadn't played the other adventures to come in at the end to basically poach the magic item it was leaving a bit of taste in their mouth and the store was like supported the poacher not <laughs> the other players and that that didn't create a lot of um goodwill either but yeah that that's a i found that a problem with like like you said there's ways to game the system i just i can't i i honestly and this is i just can't get that excited about a make-believe item in a make-believe game for my make-believe character I mean, and, and maybe that's a bad thing that I can't do it, but I just, I mean, no matter how hard I try, I just, I can't get that revved up to get a magic item for that character. There's, there's, of course, there's times where I'll look at it and go, oh man, I'd really like to have that item for my character. But you know what? Yep. If I don't get it, I don't get it. You know, there will be another adventure or there will be something, you know, uh, I just, you know, yeah, of course we all want them. I'm not, I'm not crazy. Of course I want to have great things for that, for any character really, but it's not that important to me. I'm a story GM. I'm a story player. I'm not saying I'm always great at it, but that's, that's what makes me tick. I like story. I like character. I like, it's why, why I read novels. It's why I watch movies. If, if those movies were done completely abstract and like the mechanics, I'd hate it. And I think most people would. But so that's always where I come from. My my desire to do anything in game is always coming from a story point of view. And that's why, you know, like I'm not attacking anyone who enjoys it the other way, just wants to just wants to, you know, play it more like a 
that they enjoy just the combat. I've played with people that's all they care about. They don't care about anything else in the game. They just like the getting to the combat and doing all that stuff with the minis and that. That's cool. If, if that's what they like, it's not what I do, but I understand why they like it. I'm not attacking anyone who does it differently like that. You know, because people have said, well, you know, but why are you thinking this way about stuff? It's because everything I do is story-based. That's That's what I like. That's why I play. The, the R-O-L-E part of the role-playing game is, for me, the essential part. For me. I realize it's not for everybody else, and that's cool, but for me. So when every view I have, it's always coming from, from that position. So is there a way that you could make a story treasure somehow? Well, I think that a big part when it comes to magic items is is if it's if it's not an AL game where you can't change much. Um, the first thing I would do would be limit the amount of magic items available so that they become rarer. And I'd try to make them more interesting. I think that a big part of why magic items have become mundane to players is because, of, like you said, the, the way they're handled out, the way you can find them. I think that they're better when they're tied to something. And not necessarily they, they have to be tied directly to the story. You know, you don't necessarily need to be on a, go on a quest to find the sword to, to slay the dragon. Um, although that's not necessarily bad. You know, you get a lot of the old lore and things like Dragon Slayer and that. You could, you know, like the old movie. Factoring things of, of that sort of nature into it can be cool. But I think that making everything interesting... is really a key part of it. Like, one thing I don't like is they said magic items can only be made from masterwork items. Well, let's say they're a barbarian race and they had to deal with a vampire. They might make a magic item that is a stake. But would it necessarily be a masterwork stake? Like, would it need to be? It's almost like um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Which was the grail? Was it any of those golden, you know, fancy gem-encrusted? No, it was the most plain-looking wood thing there, but it was the cup of Christ. In a way, it's like that. If you get an elvish smith, yes, it probably would be a gorgeous sword, armor, shield, whatever, because Elv- same as dwarves. Both are known for their craftsmanship. Different types of craftsmanship, but craftsmanship nevertheless. So those, you would expect them to be more flashy and fancy. And, you know, if you got an elvish sword that was as plain and, you know, you, tol- you just basic, you'd be a bit, really? I might expect that from certain human you know, sort of ones. It works very well, but it's just a sword. But it sort of removed that thing of having this this sort of item that is magic and important, but plain. Or an orcish sword. Would Like, orcs yeah. have a very different kind of craftsmanship. Would it be masterwork if they did actually able to create a plus one sword for themselves? Like, would it really be masterwork? I don't necessarily think it would be because I think the magic infused in it would be would be different. I understand why they're saying the masterwork thing, but I think it cuts out some of that thing. So 
interest to make it interesting is more important than anything else. And then you can have like a barbarian race that has a history of dealing with vampires. It becomes part of their their makeup, part of their history. And then they might make stakes or, or, or other defensive or offensive things as part of what they've learned. But it might not be masterwork and it might not be this gorgeous thing. It might just it might just be a twisted piece of wood. But there's something about it that they've created and they've yeah. made that, that leads into it being useful. Well, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff about people trading items and selling items, things like that. One one thing, I, I just started thinking about it as you were talking about these, um, you know, the masterwork items and how they would be made by elves or dwarves or orcs or what have you. Maybe one thing they could have done is have once a once you've attuned to an item if you go to sell it you have to deattune but i would say that it's that attunement that makes it magical it's that attunement to you so it's going to be like aaron this is a plus 2 flame tongue sword when you're holding it anybody else i was just a long sword I'll give you three gold for it. Not three thousand. Three. Right? Um, maybe maybe something like that, you know? Helm of Brilliance just becomes a circlet. You know, something like that. Something and again, they, then you then you're tying it to a specific event. Uh and, and that would that would also I think that would also kind of put the put the end to being able to purchase and trade these items because that was another one that kind of again you had people that just gamed the system at that point look at kill bill she goes to there's a quest she goes to okinawa she goes to a sushi shop where the dude is hattori hanzo a fantastic maker of swords who no longer make swords because they were used to kill. And she convinces him that he owes the world one more sword because there's someone so evil in it, someone that he made a sword for that needs to be dealt with. And he does. That whole sequence is story. It goes for, I don't know, 10 minutes or something like that, of this creation of the sword. Yeah, yeah. the creation of the sword. Great it, scene. And that's telling us... The viewer, this sword is important. It's not just a katana. It's a Hanzo sword, and that means something. And that's the problem when you can just walk into a store and go, oh, I'll take that plus two katana and that plus one dagger. And, you know, there's, that's why I think that it's such importance in, like, Kill Bill to have that emphasis and that time period on the building and the making of the sword. Even... His bald attendant, which yaps off at him, and they're always arguing, and there's a lot of humor in that. When they go to the sword making thing, the relation, yeah, the relationship was very different, and it was reverence, and yeah, that's where it was truly master student or whatever. So when I talk about where I come from from story, it's stuff like that. So. It's not about denying the players items because sometimes that'll be the argument. Oh, you just, you know, does that mean we should deny players items and stuff? Well, no, not necessarily, but make it 
again, like you said, that was earned. That story part was earned. It was earned through story. Yeah. And I think in the long run, it'll matter more to the player. It'll, it might, they might not realize it initially. Maybe they will. But I think that over time, they will much more appreciate that they had earned that sword or that item and that it meant something. And especially if the GM then ties that item into the adventure or the campaign in some meaningful way, then it all just complements each other. It just doesn't become this, this item. This doesn't become something you write on your character sheet and then rub off later on when you no longer need it and get something better. You can see where that does become a problem, though, in, in something that every week you're going through a story. Because unless you're gaming with the same people every week, you might end up having a character that goes for, you know, 30, 40 weeks and, oh, well, this treasure never came up. We always got something I couldn't use. <laughs> we always are, you know, the one week where it was something I could use, we had two mages in the group and the other guy wanted the wand more. And we did a fair thing for it to roll the die and see who got the better roll. And and that's that. It's You can't account for the randomness of who else you're going to be playing with. So it's not a, it's not a flawless solution either, but um, I think it would be a start. And I, and I do think for a campaign, I think far and away, that's the best way to go. It does so much. I, I really think, and there's nothing to say you can't do it in the rule books, as we've discussed. Yes. Yes, first absolutely. Rule is make your own rules if you want. Um, so what I would like to do is make a campaign where, you know, maybe you go up in, in levels, but you're not going to get great magic stuff for a good long while. But guess what? When you need it, I'll make sure you have it as a DM. Right? And that's... I try to communicate that to my players, but I... I don't completely want to break the fourth wall for them either and, and tell them, don't worry about it. You're going to get what you want. But, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not heartless. I'm not going to, I'm not going to send them out there to, to die. Cause that's not fun. And if it's not fun, then the game's a failure. Rule number Unlike one that. is everyone has to have fun. Right. Always. Always. Yeah. And for some people, fun is, having a mage that's going to completely blow away everything on the board. So, I, I mean, that's where my job as a DM becomes a bit harder. I got to, I got to find a way to pull that back and yet still have that person have a good time playing the game. You know, I still want them to have fun, but I can't have them blowing away everything on the, on the board. Cause, cause then the other people are probably, not having fun unless they are. I mean, if if everybody is happy seeing the mage completely kill everything, well, I mean, then for for me, great, the problem I with guess. with combat comes into like when we were doing um, Frost Maiden. There was a set course of action that made the most sense for my rogue to do, but God was it boring, and it was hide. Break cover by three hexes. Shoot with advantage. And then with advantage. move three hexes back out of the line of fire and hide. And 
That was what was expected of me from the other players. Two of them even said, is that what you're going to do? Because that's what you should do. It made the most tactical sense. And if I was doing a tactical board game, like let's say Warhammer or, uh, or well, that, that's more um, armies, but let's say like Infinity, which is a tactical board game, I would be 100% cool with that because that would make the most sense to do something like that in Infinity with my sniper, let's say. But for me as a role-playing storytelling character that was incredibly boring and that's not the gm's fault yeah because that's nothing to do with the gm that's just the smartest way for my player my character rather to deal the most damage in the safest way possible but if that was a movie or a novel i think people generally would be saying that that wasn't very engaging or exciting but tactically it made sense same as we, how many times did we say to Alex, "Are you going to rage?" Because he's a barbarian. It, it's it's like we we break <laughs> his character yes. down into one thing. Are you going to rage? It it almost doesn't give him room to do anything else. Yeah. Now it it can be fun having a character that does that. I have another friend who plays a barbarian in a campaign and he's always trying to rage and he role plays it so well because anytime he talks in character he's yelling very loudly and it's it's great fun to watch him play everything is let go of my friends and you know things like this and even when he's out of rages he's still yelling and trying to rage even though we you know we know and he knows when he's rolling that no he's not which is cool he's turning that into something at the moment but his, his character thinks he is. He's just, he's always got that, you know, he's got that edge about him, right? And and that can be a lot of fun, but that's that's a different, he's playing that character differently. Um, I mean, this is a guy who really gets into his characters and to the point where the rest of us were ready to kill him just the other week because he kept trying to stop uh, fights from happening. A, a different different character altogether a pacifist type of character and that character actually wiped out the rage of the other barbarian in that party because <laughs> the the poor fellow just started raging as a barbarian and he was ready to do some massive damage and the uh, cleric cast or was he a druid? I can't remember which class, but he cast Calm Emotions. And it worked. The barbarian failed the, the saving throw. Mm-hmm. So he calmed down, lost his rage. So, and you know, at level, I think we're at level two. So he only gets like two rages a day or something. And um, he just lost that one. <laughs> Doesn't get it back. And the the enemies were going to fight to the death so he failed the the common motion save the other guys passed it and they were still fighting and it was it was very it was very comical and and uh you know again that's one of those things where you you want to break character and just <laughs> scream and yell at the player what are you doing but no he's doing what his character would do. 
So, I mean, you know, we, we really, as players, we should be applauding him. But as players, we were actually mad at him that he would do that. And it's like, well, no, that's what that character would do. I'm not and I think it's important for do. GMs to, A, uh, cater to your players. Because obviously, if, if they don't have a good time, it's failed, like Ken said. You've got to make sure everyone has a good time. And sometimes them having a good time means you not doing everything that you wanted as GM. And the second thing, which should come first, talk to your players. Find out what it is they actually want. Because sometimes you might think all they want is story, and they might not want just story. They might want a balance between combat and story. Or they might not want any story, and they just want to do combat. Or any mixture of the thing, and you won't know until you talk to them. And don't just walk in... I think the worst GM... This is, this is my biggest GM advice ever, is don't walk in like it's your game. It's everyone's game. Now, it's, it's a little bit different in AL, but with a campaign, there, there has to be give and take. Players have to realize the GM has prepped, sometimes for hours. And while they're prepping, the players can be watching Netflix, going to the pub, having a good time, playing video games, whatever, while the GM is prepping a game for them. So they have to realize that there is work involved on the GM side. That doesn't mean, though, that the GM has just should have this, this idea that this is my game and you're just in it. Because I think that, that can lead to a lot of bad situations. So it's always important to sit down and, and talk with your players. We're proposing some changes to Trek Combat based on how things have gone in a couple of the sessions. But I'm not going to walk in and go, I've made these changes to Trek. We're going to have a discussion with the players first and see what everyone feels is the best way to go. And we will then adopt that. Communication avoids a lot of problems, I think. And that applies to the treasure. If you want to change how treasure's done, put it to your players. See what see what they think. You know, like from, from everything, like should we limit magic items? Because... There is some changes that would have to be made because obviously certain creatures only get hit by magic. Some some creatures cannot be hit by regular stuff. So if a GM limits Correct. magic swords or magic weapons, they've got to be aware. They've got to read through the adventure and go, oh, there's a ghast or something. Yeah, okay. They don't have any magic weapons and they're not going to get any for a little bit. Change the monster. Or you make it fewer of them. Right. If you've got a magic user or something, yeah. If in a campaign, you know what you've got for players, so you can you can always easily yeah. Just don't things, dictate to your right? players. Work with them, because if if they feel that you've worked with them, they'll try to work with you. The at the end of the day, the GM is a player, a different type of player, but he's a player. He's there to have a good time, or she's there to have a good time as well. It's not it's not just a you know it's it's not all about the players. It's not all about the GM. It's meant to be a social group that's having a great time. So everyone's got to, got to work together towards that end. The bottom line is, I think, if you make if you put some thought as a GM into the treasure, I think your players will appreciate it more. I do too. If you, you, you ta tailor something to each individual in some way, make it important, make it part of what they're doing, yeah, I think they're going to enjoy that. And put it in rarely. Make that treasure, like I said, make it mean something, you know? 
it does eliminate some of the funnier things. I did end up with um, plate mail of water breathing once. And everyone did think that was funny until we all fell off the boat. And then the guys in chain were struggling <laughs> to not drown. And my character just walked along the bottom of the the, the bed until he could you know e- exit the water. And I was fine. It was not very practical in the sense that it's not really something that would often be put on plate mail. Because plate mail is not typically considered something you'd have on water but i mean it was funny but mm-hmm. yeah i think that if you'd normally you know having it um i did have i did end up with one that was fire resistant or fire fire immune that was brilliant because then the the mage was like i want to cast fireball and it's like <laughs> yeah that's cool bring it on and it didn't do any damage so that was great but then the whole armor was designed it was red and that's the thing it wasn't just because a lot of time, too, the armor just feels, or whatever, the item just feels like a thing with a number or a resistance or whatever. This, there was actually a picture in the yeah. book, and it was all red and designed around this, this concept. And and it's going to stand out. That's, I mean, there's so many ways you can work all these things into your story, too. Right? So, yeah, you've got fire-resistant armor. Guess what? You stick out like a sore thumb. Everybody that sees you in that armor is going to remember. Oh, man, there's this guy that came walking through town the other day. Yep. And he had the weirdest armor on. And he had five friends with him. Oh, yeah, I remember <laughs> them well, Mr. Bad Guy. I can tell you exactly where they're staying. And even, like, you know? I think little things. It's not necessarily treasure-related, but make it make a note. If they do something cool in town, if they come back through that town ages later... If they've been, they might be recognized, especially if they've got that unusual sort of armor or something, and someone buys them a drink for something they did ages ago, it, it helps them to remind them that things they did mattered. Yep. Or someone poisons that drink because they did something so terrible to them. That's the other thing to remember. Every good deed, no good deed goes unpunished, as they like to say. Which we might do as an upcoming discussion: how to make a, a setting more breathable, more, more like it's in a, a living, breathing setting, rather than just a static point A to point B. That sounds good. So, in the meantime, maybe we'll wrap it up there. And for you, for you people listening, let us know how do you deal with treasure in your campaigns, and what do you want to see as a player or as a DM? How do you want to do the treasure and? What's your thoughts on uh, everything we've discussed here? We'd uh, look forward to hearing from you. And it's good night from me. All right. Have a good night.